precious promises for us. Let's pray together as we come to God's Word. Lord Jesus, as we see the rain falling outside, I'm reminded of of your promise in Isaiah that just like the rain comes down from heaven and waters the earth and causes it to grow and to flourish and to thrive and bring forth fruit, in the same way your word comes down from heaven and it waters our soul and it causes us to grow and to flourish and to bear fruit. And so we pray that this morning that you would take your word and that you would penetrate our hearts with it. Lord, that your Holy Spirit would speak this morning. That's what we need. Not my words, but your words through the power of Holy Spirit. That they would penetrate and transform our hearts. That your promises would become our treasure. Come and work in us, Lord Jesus. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, so we'll start off, kids, with a question for you guys. Have you ever had this situation where, you know, maybe mom and dad, maybe your parents are going away uh, and they got to say goodbye? You know, it could be like at school. This happens quite a lot whenever you're going to school. Mom and dad are dropping you off at school and they're, they're saying goodbye or, or maybe it's mom and dad are going away for a trip. Ashley and I got to go away um, a little over a week ago, just us to get away without the kids, which was incredible. And it was kind of that, that moment where we're going away and we're, we're saying things to them and saying goodbye that are really, really important. So kids, have you ever had that experience where mom and dad are saying goodbye? And if you're a parent here, you know what that's like when you're going away and you're saying goodbye, and what do you do in those moments? You say really important things to your children. Kids, what are some of the things that mom and dad say to you when they're going away? Listen to Peyton. Okay, your big sister. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Anybody else? Luke? Be good. That's right. Be good. Be good. When? Obey your grandparents, that's right. Bo? Yeah, yeah, mom, okay. Sometimes we just say to Bo, mom. <laughs> you know, when you're, when you're going away, especially if it's going to be for a while, especially if you know it's going to be a really challenging time for your children, Especially if you know that there's, there's some, some hard times ahead. Those words of goodbye are especially precious and especially important. And what you want to say and stress in those moments are some of the most critical things. And you want to say, I promise you, I am coming back for you. So as we come to our passage today, and really what we're going to do for the next couple of weeks is we're going to finish our Enjoying Jesus uh, series through the book of John. We started this January 1st. We're going to finish and we're going to focus on our finish. We're going to focus on this section in John 13. We've already looked at John 13, but John 13 through John 17, which that's, 
That's four chapters that just cover Jesus' goodbye in his last moments with his disciples before he goes to the cross and goes to the Father. These are intimate, intimate moments and words that he shares with his disciples. And just like we do when we're going away, he is pressing upon them the most important thing that they need to remember while they're separated from him, while he's with the Father. And so essentially Jesus is saying this throughout the whole chapter. Stay centered on me. Remain in me. Stay focused on me. No matter what you're going to face there, stay centered on me. And one of the things that he promises is, you know, I'm going away, but I'm actually going to come to you through the Holy Spirit. That he is actually going to be present with him. We're going to look at that next week. But Jesus is essentially saying, listen, while I'm away, it's all about me. Just stay focused upon me. But interesting, what we see from two of his disciples in our passage is that they think that they need something more than just Jesus. They think it's not just enough to have Jesus, to have his words, to have his presence. They think that they need something more, and that's part of what we're going to look at here. And I think that really resonates with us if we think about it. I think it can be so often, so common in the Christian life to begin with Jesus. We talk about this all the time where we, we begin with the gospel, which is really the gospel is really Jesus. It's the good news about Jesus. It's all that God has accomplished in Jesus. But we begin with Jesus, and then we move on to something more. And we move on to thinking the way that we grow in the Christian life is by learning techniques or moral lessons or learning to try harder. And we we think that in the Christian life to, to grow and to be changed, that really we need something more than just Jesus, just beholding Jesus. And so often... We want to go after those things, and we want to move on to something more, and yet Jesus is calling them back to himself. And for even of those those of us who might be here today who don't believe, the most common reality is that often in life we're running to so many different places thinking this is going to satisfy me in life. And that's not only for those who don't believe, we as believers know that same reality. The world is often holding out these things to us and saying, if you get this, you're going to have life. And so we're always tempted to run after success and hobbies and toys and, and our children becoming something wonderful and, and, and houses and vacations and entertainment. And the list goes on and on and on. All of the things that we are tempted to chase life in. But the reality is, it doesn't ever deliver. Here's what Jesus is saying, not only to his disciples, but to us this morning. What you most need in the Christian life is to behold me. Make me the center of your life. That's what it means to live the Christian life. So let's jump into our passage here, where we see Jesus at the very beginning, addresses what they're feeling. Now, as we talked about a minute ago, anytime you're leaving and you know that it's going to be a really hard time, you know that there's a lot of anxiety in the heart of your children. Well, the same thing's happening right here. Jesus is leaving. They don't fully understand why are you leaving. 
Why are you leaving us? Where are you going? There's a lot of confusion still. That doesn't become clear until after the resurrection. And so they're troubled and they're worried. And so Jesus in our passage is comforting them. As he says right in the very beginning, do not let your heart to be troubled. Trust in God. Trust in me. Trust me. And then he gives them an amazing promise. Now, this is one of those incredible promises. This is like the essential hope of the Christian life. Where Jesus says this, I'm going to the Father and I'm going to prepare a place for you. And I'm going to come back and I'm going to take you to be with me with the Father. What is he talking about? He's talking about heaven. He's talking about I am one day going to take you to be with the Father in the Father's house. Where you will be with him and with me forever. And that is the ultimate Christian hope. And if you have lost someone in your life, you know how precious that hope is. That they if they are in union with Christ, are with the Father. That's the ultimate hope. So Jesus gives them this promise, but what we see in the passage is that two of the disciples don't get it. And they don't think that, that that's enough. And so they raise these incredible questions that I think really resonate with us. These questions about how does that happen? How do we get there? And that's what I want to focus on in our time. So Jesus says, I'm going to come back. I'm going to take you to be with the Father. And you know the way to where I'm going. And so then what does Thomas say? Look at what Thomas, Thomas jumps in, kind of like Peter. You know, he blurts out what he's really feeling. And Thomas says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? How do we get there? What is the way to get to where you're going? And now essentially, Thomas is asking for a map. He's asking for a pathway to get there. Tell us what we need to do in order to get there, Jesus. He's essentially asking for what is the strategy? What, what do we need to do? How do we get there? Now, we can resonate with that. How easy it is to think there's something I've got to do in order to get to the Father. There's something I've got to do in order to get to heaven. There's something that I've got to do in order to change in my life. Give me seven principles to a better marriage. Give me techniques. Give me a moral lesson. Tell me what I need to do. How can I get there? Give me the map. And listen, it is so much more appealing to hear moral lessons than to just hear Jesus. You find that in your life? How excited we get about a new technique you know, if you want to write an article and you want your blog to go viral, talk about seven steps to something or five steps or techniques because we all hope that somehow we're going to get the information that we need that, to lock the secret, unlock the secret in order to be able to overcome our, our struggles and be able to get to the Father. It's so much more appealing. And in fact, it's so common as believers to think that that's how we grow and progress in the Christian life. If you ever go to a bookstore and you go to the Christian section, what is the largest section there? The Christian self-help section. That sells. And in fact, it's so common in the church that we want to, instead of just proclaiming Christ, in fact, that's what the Apostle Paul says, Him we proclaim. 
I resolved to know nothing except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. But yet it's so tempting in the church to just want to do moral lessons. In fact, you can, you can pack a room if you just talk about strategies and moral lessons of how to get better. We so, like, like Thomas, we so deeply want to know, give me the way to get there. What can I do? But then Philip has got a different kind of objection, right? What does he say to Jesus in verse 8? Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Lord, we know you're going away. We know it's going to be hard. But if you will just show us the Father, essentially he's asking for an experience. Let us see a vision. Let us experience it. Give us this experience here in this moment and that will be enough. If you just let me see it or you just let me hear something, give me the powerful experience and that will be enough. That will be all that we need. They think. Now, I think we can resonate with that too. How, how much we long for experience. We just give so much credence to experience. We, we think, if I can just experience it, if, it I, if I can just see it, if I can just hear it, if I can just feel it inside, if I can just get that quiver in my liver, I'll be okay. And how often in the Christian life we want to live on past experience. In the Christian life, like we remember some stage or, or season of life where we felt so close to Jesus and we want to live off of that. Or even now we want to chase experience. We, we're longing for more experience and thinking that, that experience is what's going to really anchor us, what's going to get us to the end, what's going to bring us to the Father. It's also I find that people are just so fascinated with hearing about other people's experiences, spiritual experiences. We tend to be so enamored by someone telling about their powerful experience. And if somebody shares their experience, well, you just know it's true, right? Because who can contradict somebody's personal experience? You know, there's always these stories that are coming out about people's near-death experiences. In fact, there's a lot of movies that have been made about them, and they've been incredibly popular among evangelical Christians. You know, I, I can't think of some of the titles. I think one's like God's Not Dead and different things. But there's these, you know, people have these experiences where they die and they have some sort of a vision, some sort of an encounter and an experience. And then they come back, you know, they come back to life and they tell their experience. Now, I don't want to discount this. And some of you might be getting irritated with me going this direction. I merely want to say, why do we need that? Why is that the thing that's going to bolster our faith? Why, why do we need the experience? We're like Philip. Just give me the experience and it'll be okay. You know what Jesus says? He essentially says the same thing to both of those objections. He says, you don't need that. You need me. Just center yourself on me. Make me the center. Behold me. Fix your eyes upon me. That's the way to the Father. That's the way to live the Christian life. In his response to Philip, look at what he says to Philip. Philip says, show us the Father. Give us the experience. Verse 9, Jesus says, don't you know me, Philip? After I've been among you such all this time, how can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me? 
Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you know me, you know the Father. There's nothing more that you need. Because you see, Jesus is teaching, the Father is in me, I'm in the Father. We are so one that if you see Jesus, you see the fullness of who God is. The writer of Hebrews begins the book of Hebrews by saying this, is that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. If you see Jesus, you see exactly A to Z what God is like. If you behold Jesus, you behold the fullness of God in flesh. So he's saying, you don't need that, you just need me. And if you know me, then you know the Father. You don't need an experience. You just need to fix yourself upon me, your eyes upon me. And very similarly to Thomas, Thomas says, show us the way. Give us a map. How do we get there? And Jesus responds with this huge phrase. It's the six of the I am statements. Look at what he says in verse six. Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's, we've noticed that as we've been through the book of John, that one of the ways that John structures his book is through these seven I am statements, where Jesus says, I am, and he has different things. I'm the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. I'm the way. We've looked at all of those. Tremendously, if you know anything about the Old Testament, you know that I am was God's special name for his people. So that, that was God's special name, and yet here Jesus is taking that upon himself. He's saying that I am God, but not only that, I am all of reality. And look at how he responds to Thomas here, who wants a way, he wants a pathway. And Jesus says to Thomas, I am the way. Not just that I know the way or I, I can tell you how to get there. No, I am the way. I'm the way itself. The reality is Jesus is the only way to be reconciled to the Father. See, what separated each and every one of us by nature from the Father is our sin, our guilt, our rebellion against the Father. And the only thing that can reconcile us to the Father, the only way to the Father is through Jesus and what he's accomplished. Through his death and his resurrection, he's taken our place, he's taken our guilt upon himself and our shame upon himself, and he's given us his righteousness, and he brings us to the Father in such a way that Jesus can say, Thomas, I am the way. There is no other way. And yet also he says, I am the truth. Now that's a huge statement. Not just, again, I know truth, or I speak truth, Jesus saying, I am truth. I'm the fullness of truth. In fact, you cannot know truth apart from Jesus. You cannot know who God is apart from Jesus. That's a big statement. Amen. Stan, thank you. I need more amens here, okay? Being a Presbyterian does not mean you can't say amen. And we got a bunch of Baptists in here, so we need more amens. So you cannot understand who God is apart from Jesus. And listen, I, all the time, especially in the Bible Belt, we get so generic in our understanding of who God is. You know, we like to talk about the big man upstairs, you know, the, the, 
God's looking out for me. God's watching over me. I'm blessed. But it's just so generic. And often as we conceive of God, it's just exactly that, what we conceive of in our mind. But you cannot know who God really is apart from Jesus. There's no way. You can't even know who you are apart from Jesus. And we spend so much of our effort and our thinking and our life trying to figure out, who am I? Who, who am I supposed to be? Where am I supposed to be? What is my purpose in life? You cannot know that apart from Jesus. Why is that? Because He is the image of God. He, whenever you look at Jesus, you see what all of humanity was intended to be. So you cannot understand yourself apart from Him. You cannot understand Scripture apart from Jesus. For if you are reading Scripture and you do not see that Scripture and the truth of that Scripture through the lens of Christ, how He fulfills it and how it points to Him, you don't understand Scripture. You can't understand the world apart from Jesus. It's only through the lens of Christ that we understand the world and what it was made for and where it's headed. It's huge for Jesus to say, I am the truth. And then finally, I'm the life. You know, so often, we're chasing after life. Ultimately, that's what we long for because that's what we're made for, for life, fullness of life. And yet, we, we want to seek it in so many different places. We talk about this a whole lot. Oftentimes, good things like children and Houses and vacations and hobbies, those are all good things, nothing wrong with them, but we look to them for life, and yet Jesus is saying, I am the life. You will never know satisfaction, you will never know wholeness, you will never know peace, you will never know life apart from Jesus. And you see, all of this, he is trying to communicate, not just to his disciples, but to us. Center yourself on me. You know, it's so common to think as believers, if you're a believer that's been a believer for any amount of time, I get Jesus. I know what he's done. You know, I've learned that right off the bat whenever I first became a believer. I know what Jesus did, and I know who he is and what he's done for me, and I'm, I'm really excited about that. I'm glad that he's got me into heaven whenever I die. But now the way that I live the Christian life is about other things. Moral lessons, techniques, trying harder, doing the right things, being a good person. It's so common to think that. And yet here Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. You don't start with me and move on to something else. I am the very center of the entire Christian life. The only way to grow, the only way to flourish is by being centered on me and beholding me. And let me give you an, an illustration here. So Ashley and I have got a, a, a good family friend that we were spending some time with recently. And, and he was telling us about some struggles in his life, some struggles that he's really battling with. And he was telling us that he was going to see a counselor. And like, I know the counselor that he's going to, to, to see is a good biblical counselor. I'm a big fan of counseling, biblical counseling. And uh, a good Christ-centered, biblical counselor, but he was frustrated. He said, yeah, I, I went to this first meeting, and, and I just felt like they were just too easy on me. I, I, I felt like they were just being too nice, and he wasn't calling me out. And, and, and then he started to say to us, you know, I, 
I don't need you to sugarcoat this. I need you to speak to me. And what, what he wanted is he wanted us to beat him up. He wanted us to shame him. He wanted us to say, how are you doing all these things in your life? How are you struggling with this? Get your act together. I can't believe you're acting like this. He actually wanted that because he, he wanted to change, you see. He wanted to be the one who changed himself. He wanted to be the one to get his act together. And you know what we did? We refused to give him what he wanted. You know what we did? We just preached Christ to him. We just said, you don't need that. You need Jesus. You don't need us to beat you up. You don't need to beat yourself up. You don't need any techniques. You don't need to find the perfect counselor. Those, all of those things, as good as they are, they're not going to fix you. What you need is Jesus. You know his response? It's like, what are you even talking about? He couldn't get it. He wanted us to tell him what to do, and we refused. Another instance of a person who lives in the community here who's struggling in a, a lot of different ways, and we were meeting with this lady, and, and so she was telling us all that she's wrestling through in her life and, and all the ways that she's hoping to change. And we just stopped and we just said, can we just tell you who Jesus is? And I mean, she's a professing believer, but, but that didn't stop us. You don't just preach Jesus to, believe, uh, to unbelievers. Believers, we need to hear about Jesus. And we just said, do you know what's true of you in Jesus? You know, you just need him. You just need to embrace him. And you know what her response was? I know, I'm, I'm trying harder. I'm trying. I'm going to get there. And we were like, wait a minute, what? We, we didn't say to try anything. We said to behold Jesus. One of my friends who pastors a church nearby, works in this general, you know, Bible Belt vicinity, and he said, you know what I found is that folks so often in the Bible Belt, they're Jesus proof. What a term, Jesus proof. That is like you think you know the Jesus thing, and so you don't need that anymore because you got it. And so when you try to preach Jesus to somebody and point somebody to Jesus, they're just like, I got that. No, no, I need, I need you to tell me how to change and how to be fixed. Jesus proof. You know, it's so hard for all of us to just behold Jesus. I mean, we, we so deep down, we want to know, we want to do it. We want to say, give me something to do. How can I change? That's what we want to focus on. It's so hard to just behold and fix our eyes on Jesus. Our, our term for that as a church is enjoy Jesus. Now, I realize that's an abstract. That's not something you can go perform. I realize that. So the question is, how do you do that? Well, it's in Scripture. It's, it's by beholding Jesus in Scripture. How do we see Jesus? How do we know Jesus? Right here. In His Word. It's in the Scriptures. That's how we meet Jesus. That's how we get intimate with Jesus. That's how we speak with Jesus and how He speaks into our life. That's how we behold Jesus. And if you're not... In his word, then you're not going to be able to behold Jesus. There's just no way around that. So as a, as a people and as a congregation, we need to learn how to fit this into our life. 
You know, as we come together on Sunday, this we're beholding Jesus here. Whenever we gather in our community groups, we're beholding Jesus here. But even beyond that, we need to know individually and personally how do we go to our Bible each day and behold Jesus there. Because that's what we need. To see him there. And, and it, it's not like you're reading about a historical figure in here. We're not reading a history book here. We are encountering the living Christ. How do you explain that? I don't know. It's a mystery. But I know that it happens personally. Personal experience. Many of you have that. So we've got to be beholding Jesus in the scriptures. Well, I want to end with an illustration that helps us to understand about beholding Jesus. Because that's ultimately what we need. That's how we change to fix our eyes upon him and to behold him each day. Now, the reality is what changes us is beholding glory. And I want to show an, uh, a clip from the Shawshank Redemption. Has anybody ever seen that movie? It's a great movie. You know, that movie, I watched it whenever it first came out. And I kind of have this thing in my mind that it like came out just a year ago. And as I was watching this clip to kind of, you know, be reminded of it, I'm like, this footage looks so old. And then it dawned on me that half the people in this room have never seen this movie because it probably came out in like 95 or something. But listen, it's a great movie. But the clip that we're, that we're watching is a scene, and the movie is about a prison. It's really about these prisoners, and it's about their lives and about how uh, just who they are and how they find community in the prison. But really, the, the story revolves around this one guy named Andy who's been falsely accused and, uh, of murdering his wife, and he's been sentenced to life in prison. And so he learns how to live there knowing that he might never be released, but always hoping. And in the end of the movie, he actually escapes. Sorry I spoiled it for everybody. But Andy, just who he is, he has a profound impact on these other prisoners and Morgan Freeman is red he's one of the prisoners and he's kind of the narrator of it and we'll hear him come in and kind of interpret the scene but in this scene Andy has won all kinds of favor from the warden he's able to do the personal books of the warden he's able to have access to the warden's office and one day he's in the warden's office and he runs across some some records and he finds in a record a beautiful piece of music an opera and he chooses to take that. I mean, we're, we're talking about men who essentially in prison have been cut off from beauty altogether. And he plays this record. And he cuts on the entire PA system of the whole prison. And for a few brief moments, beauty feels the brokenness and the ugliness of where they are. And I want you to notice how beholding beauty, beholding glory changes them in the moment. We'll talk about it right after that.
Andy, do you hear that? to this day what those two Italian ladies were singing about. Truth is, I don't want to know. Some things are best left unsaid. I like to think they were singing about something so beautiful it can't be expressed in words and makes your heart ache because of it. I tell you, those voices soared higher and farther than anybody in a great place dares to dream. It was like some beautiful bird flapped into our drab little cage and made those walls dissolve away. And for the briefest of moments, every last man at Shawshank felt free. It's a great clip, isn't it? I knew my kids would really enjoy the toilet scene there. I love how Red puts it. For the briefest of moments, every last man in Shawshank felt free. We all know that reality, that when you behold glory, it changes you. We all, that's what we all long for. It's why we're chasing after all the things that we're chasing for. Because we were made to behold glory. You see what the scriptures say? The fullness of God's glory is seen in the person of Jesus. So you've got to figure out how to behold the glory of Jesus. Because that's how we're transformed. And when we say as a church, our mission begins with enjoying Jesus, that's what we're talking about. Beholding the beauty of Jesus. All mission, all that we're called to do, a loving life, everything flows from that. Let me close this in prayer. Lord Jesus, it's so hard to behold, to behold you whenever we're so inundated by so many things in our life that make us busy and that tempt us to behold lesser glories. But I pray that as a church, through the power of your spirit, you would help us to be a people that are daily beholding the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ that we would be changed, that we would be moved, and that we would be compelled 
sacrificially in mission in Dade County for the sake of your name and for your kingdom. In Christ's name we pray.